0: Hey everybody and hello to our wonderful listeners. It is episode 38 and I know all our episodes are special but this one is super special because it's one of our famed special guest episodes. More of that in about 30 seconds time. But first I just want to say hello to my colleague from Arthur D. Little, um, head of media, uh, the partner leading the media practice, Maureen Kerr. Hello Maureen.
1: Hello Oliver
0: and Claire. Hello Claire. Uh, Claire as we know has done all things media in a long and distinguished career in-house, outhouse as a consultant and now she's a commentator as well. Hello Claire. Did you
2: say outhouse? I'm not sure I'm putting that on my I CD. I did say
0: outhouse which <laughs> makes you sound sort of like a, a, a chicken or something. Well you you're very much not. You're as far away from poultry as I, I can imagine Claire. A a uh, media genius commentator, wonderful all-round person. I think I've probably clawed that one back, but I'm in charge of the edit. So that's cool. Um, hello, Claire. Anyway, um, and sorry if I pro- probably inferred that you were livestock. But we have to get on, uh, and uh, here we go. So we've we've rattled through the introductions because we have with us uh, Mr. Cliff Fluitt who is um, one of the types of guests we love on the podcast The Media Beat. He's um, something of a polymath. Well, he is a polymath. Has lots of strings to his bow uh, and uh, also is, is a, a renowned communicator uh, mostly around the subject of music and digital, but also on a lot of other subjects as well. Um, he actually started his career as a lawyer uh, 30 years ago. And uh, if you're watching the video, you, you won't believe that he's had a career uh, this long. Uh, but uh, Thirty years ago, he started his uh, legal training. Uh, he spent five years in the music industry, five years in broadcast, and for the last eighteen, he's worked for Louis Silkin, who are uh, digital media consultancy, who we we may touch on. But also, since twenty thirteen, um, he has set up Eleven Advisory uh, as a strategic advisor to all things digital, specifically in the world of music, and. He has a very strong claim to being behind uh, one of the, if not the, world's first Gen, I- Gen AI music companies uh juke deck uh, I've just been checking them out, and uh, i I thoroughly recommend it It's a load of fun if, like me, you love music, uh you play guitar very badly and you think you're a bit creative juke um, deck sort of uh, um, sort of flatters you to think you actually are creative um the The ethos of uh, Louis Silkin is bravery and kindness, and I hope that Cliff brings both those qualities as well as a lot more to this podcast. Uh, it's a great pleasure to welcome you, Cliff. Hello, good morning, and uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks to you
3: and to Claire and to Maureen for the invitation as well. I should be super clear that I was a very, very early advisor to DukeDeck. I can't in any way, shape or form take uh, any, anything for being uh, behind it, as it were, but I certainly was uh, lurking in the background with regard to its success and its uh, its exit as well.
0: But the the lurkers are the are the life force. Uh, uh, I I always say. Um, so uh, well, thanks for that clarification. But even so, uh, massively impressive. So um, I'm going to shut up pretty soon uh, and let Maureen uh, take over for the first part, because, of course, what do we want to talk about? We, we've touched on music a lot in this podcast, but we've, we've never had a specialist episode to it. And, of course, all the talk is around Gen I. Um, some of it fluff, um, a lot of it exciting, solid stuff. But in the world of music, it has real resonance. And so, Maureen, I know you're chomping at the bit uh, to uh, Quizcliff around the world of GenAI and music. So uh, I'll just hand over straight to you, Maureen.
1: Thanks, Oliver. And thank you so much, Cliff, for for coming on to the podcast. So, um, you know, uh, we all know everyone's talking about generative AI and also AI. So we're not going to talk about that. We're not going to ask you specifically. (laughs) We're not going to ask you specifically about what it is. Because, uh, again, you and I have been at several conferences this week and that is all that is spoken about. So what I really want to know. Mostly by
0: me, sadly. Mostly
1: by you as well, (laughs) which I thought they were absolutely fantastic. That was a a little shout out to uh, uh, Lewis Silkin's exchange, uh, which is an excellent forum. Nice shout out to those uh, folks who organized that. And thank you very much for allowing me to participate or rather attend. And also the British Screen Forum, which uh, uh, Cliff, you also were uh, one of the main speakers at that forum. So an absolutely fascinating uh, content. But let, 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 let's dive in, because um, um, I think our audience would love to hear from your perspective, you as a businessman and you as a lawyer, and I don't know how you're going to resolve the two. Um, but, but from your perspective, um, you know, how are you as a businessman and a lawyer approaching the emergence of AI, generative AI?
3: Yes, I mean, um, and thank you again for the introduction and for the invitation as well. Um, so as Oliver mentioned as well, so I've been in and around the world of AI, generative AI, actually for the last decade or so. I've advised uh, some Fascinating companies in and around creative AI. But actually, one of the things that I'm often approached by studio producers or artists telling me, you know, this is the end of creativity, or there'll be no more artistry, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And my line is always the same, which is look, the lawyers and the accounts are going to be amongst the first against the wall. Um if you see um demos of Chat GPT built into Word. Um, or you see ChatGPT built into Excel, or you see ChatGPT built into PowerPoint. Quite extraordinary with regard to what you can see and the amount of time that most lawyers, most professionals, most white-collar workers spend actually doing what I think could be generously called crap. Um, also, as well, from a business perspective, if you break it down, and in terms of resolving too, I identify as legal curious, as I have my partner at a law firm hat on and as a strategic advisor. I am absolutely able to see that whenever you get a disruption, a discontinuity, it's not the behavior that necessarily changes, it's the business model. And the music industry is a perfect example of this. People will say to me, oh, well, the music industry embraced digital, it's great. It has been a fundamental 101 rewrite of its business model. With regard to physical assets, controlling the means of production, controlling essentially the pipes to radio and television, having a highly verticalized and controlled industry, to essentially moving it into an you know sort of monthly recurring revenue model, and an utter transformation with regard to its overall value. We went from when I was in the music industry in the mid '90s of a twenty-four dollar annual spend, now to what's around one hundred and fifty dollars. Now we can chat separately about whether or not I think that's a cap or anything like that, but we've moved and shifted the entire paradigm of the industry and discovered new roads of value. The same is going to happen in relation to legal services, I'm absolutely sure. Our most esteemed judge, Geoffrey um, Voss, master of the Rolls, said in the Times a couple of months ago, saying it's very clear that he wasn't going to go through vast lines of precedence and reading all of this stuff, and that lawyers will be moving to a last mile solution with regard to value going forward. Some of the most profitable things that law firms can do on big corporate M&A is due diligence. I don't think that that's going to be, uh, that clients are going to stand to have lots of people being paid six figures on qualification to read documents. I just don't. And also I have to gently explain to some of the trainees that my first job as a trainee was opening the post. That was my own large language model. I spent a lot of time paginating. I walked faxes from the post room etc you know and again this may sound almost victorian to some people but that was the world of law that i entered into um the firm that i trained at cms was the world's first law firm to have an email terminal on everyone's desk and they made a huge noise about it and people thought this was some strange strange thing so then we come to generative ai and then we come to ai more generally what it's going to do to the business model of law, what it's going to do to the business model of audit, what it's going to do for all professional services. Uh, As you've unfortunately had to hear me wanging on, you know, that I do see this as a new industrial revolution, but actually it's multiple industrial revolutions at the same time. What is different about this one is that everyone has access to those tools and means of production because they're holding them in their hands. And number two, this was probably the first industrial revolution where the most highly skilled are as at risk of disruption and disintermediation as the lowest skilled, lowest educated. Before people were worried about the farriers or people going out and putting out the candles of the um, arrival of electricity, et cetera, et cetera. Now we're looking at medicine, research, law, accountancy, finance, actuaries, et cetera, et cetera, at the chance of a a massive inflection point. So I think for all industries, including music, creative, media, entertainment, this is going to get wild. Can we, that's fascinating. Can we unpack a little of that productivity um,
1: aspect? Because, again, I know that I had the benefit of seeing a couple of slides that you put up at the uh, the British Screen Forum this, this week. And it was it was it was especially the the FT. I think it was a FT analysis that showed not only low skill uh, blue collar workers, but also um, more um, uh, white collar workers. So Absolutely. Could, you, could, you, could you explain that? Because it looked like it was sort of. It's like counterintuitive that it yeah, was
3: the so, up. So for the first time, you know, we've got some real numbers beyond the sort of speculation. So the FT re- released some fascinating figures last week about the financial impact and the productivity impact of the use of uh, tools such as ChatGPT. A couple of things. Number one, freelancers were seeing a precipitous dis- decline with regard to jobs and earnings. So freelance translators, freelance copywriters, freelance designers, et cetera, et cetera. You're seeing an almost immediate decline. For those who are employed, we've got two really interesting points. For supposed low-skill workers, they were seeing a 43% boost in their productivity with regard to use of these tools. For higher-skilled people, it's 17%. Now, my own pet theory is not because, oh, well, it just really helps people at lower skill and has a marginal increase. I think people at the top just aren't using it as much. I don't think that they're getting to the point then. But when those tools become unleashed, you know, when you see what the majority of accountants do all day with Excel, and then you just say to, you know, ChatGPT built into Excel, build me a prompt with this that does this, that models this, that has this, that fits with this Gantt chart over here, and that's done in under five seconds. That's going to be very interesting.
1: And from an ethical, I don't know whether to call it ethical or from a from a, um, a societal perspective, how are we going to deal with the fact that you know a lot of people will be twiddling their thumbs and not really having much to do then, across the professional services firms, if if I infer from what you've just said that, you know, ChatGPT will probably be writing code, probably be writing the headers at the, at the top of the Excel spreadsheet. Absolutely. Um, what would the labour force be doing?
3: Well, I think that's the whole thing. Um, my favourite quote with regards to the jobs question is from a chap called James Maniico, who's the SVP of technology at Google, who said, jobs lost, jobs get, Gained, jobs changed. All three things will happen. And that is true. And what will happen is that the people that work in our IT team may become legal prompt engineers, or we've got people who can actually be able to crawl codes in order to be able to look at outcomes. We're going to see the shape and change, I think, rather than necessarily the size. But as that transformation goes place, it's quite difficult because you have to reskill, you have to upskill, you have to redeploy, you have to adopt an entirely new agile way of thinking. And if this sounds very familiar to me, you know, uh, again, I've just seen these disruptions so many times. It's very difficult for some people to explain when I say I arrived at a record company before the internet. You know, uh, young people have got no idea what I'm talking about. And then when I say, look, you know, my, when I arrived at Lewis Silkin, two of our biggest clients were Nokia and Blackberry, you know, and just in terms of that. And then in the social age, and we're now in a world where we're out for pretty much every social platform, and we're seeing that rate of change increase. What is going to happen and seeing the very, very painful, I saw what happened in the music industry. I saw what happened in radio and broadcast with the arrival of these new streaming platforms. I see what happens in relation to content on television when next to the likes of YouTube, when you know a dog running in the park would get 100 million views in a, in, in a day or a lady, lady in a Chewbacca mask would get 200 million views in a day versus the production cost of Downton Abbey. All of these things, we are seeing these kind of precipitous ways of things being done. My own pet theory is that, you know, we're in an airplane. You know, when you're in an airplane, you look out the window, it looks really slow. But actually, the ground speed is really, really fast. And that is what I think we're going through. So I think that the rewriting of these business models, as we've seen in music, and it ain't finished yet, I'm sure more of that later, what we've seen in relation to broadcast television, what we've seen in relation to film, what we've seen in relation to digital technologies is now going to attack the white collar class and probably at a greater rate of, of, of impact than in relation to lower. I was told that the last job that's probably going to be disrupted by um, AI is fruit picking. Apparently, the number of combinations that are required in order to be able to do that. And I quoted the stat the other day with a chap who goes, yeah, my family owned the biggest raspberry farm in Europe. And you're right, but we're now using AI to predict crop yields, to look at the um, chemical analysis of what's going in and be able to optimise our overall systems in order to get a last mile delivery. So I was right and wrong.
1: And before I hand over to Claire, oh, before I hand over to Claire in a minute, I just want to just tap into one thing, which is with this bifurcation, which sounds like the haves and the have-nots, what's your view on commoditization and then all points of
3: differentiation?
1: Who are going to be the winners and who are going to be the losers? And and, and is that how we should view it from an economic perspective?
3: Yeah, I mean, of course, the, the the irony of digital is it makes people think in a very binary fashion. So, you know, it doesn't necessarily need to do that. But the commoditization of actually what people want versus what you had to sell is something very painful that I've had to see. So, for example, um, and again, forgive me, I keep coming back to music, but it, it's a lived example that I've been through. And it's one that people pretty much get. Um when I arrived in the industry, it was about copyright, it was about controlling, it was about levers, it was about giving people what they wanted. Piracy comes along as a sort of an inciting instrument incident. It comes in a moment of discontinuity, and actually, what we really should have realized was that people wanted access, and that the value was in access, and that meant letting go, that meant leaving, you know, losing the control. So. What we saw was commoditization. Oh, music is water, no one will like it, no one will value it. Oh what, you mean I can get access to 60 million tracks? I'll get four of those subscriptions please. So again, so I think it really is going to be about tapping into the value paradigm. What do people actually want versus what you used to sell them? And the same is true in relation to legal services in my time, we used to, when I arrived, people came to us to tell us what the law was because we had those brown books in our library. And we would sit and take those books off the wall and talk them in. For the last 20 years, I'd say to trainees that on the legal side, every client has the opportunity to Google what the law is and what the law says. We have to tell them what it will do for their sector. And that last mile is one of the reasons why we've grown as a firm like 60% in the last uh, four years, is by really focusing on that sector expertise so, going back to that whole point of differentiation rather than commoditization, volume, scale, all those things that gave you power over time could end up being dead weights.
2: Uh, I'm going to jump in. And first of all, I'm distraught because I've built my entire career on the basis that I could do pivot tables on X, in Excel. And now you're telling me that's just the end of it. So, <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do now. But anyway, um, yeah, I know, exactly. Moving on. <laughs> uh, I really like your analogy of the last mile. I think it's a very interesting, and and you could sort of extend it and say, you know, with every n- new technological revolution, you're sort of getting a shorter stretch of roads to travel, and your the value add that you add in that last in that last little bit has to grow. And I wonder how that's going. In your opinion, how that is going to impact the music industry? And you've said that the music industry has already been Dramatically transformed by technology, and you know, some of us are old enough to remember nap- the naps, days, and what that did, etc. And and you say now that digital has that music has embraced digital, but if we remember those days, that wasn't always the case. So I'm I'm just wondering, and you know, we don't we don't have crystal balls, but if you think about it, if you think about that that concept of the last mile and where the value add can be, where do you see it moving to in the music industry?
3: Yeah, the, the issue for the music industry, and to the extent that there's a morality tale for every other industry, is that we couldn't bifurcate the idea of digital from piracy, right? We just couldn't unlock those two things. And whenever you other in a technology, it doesn't work well. Right? You know, I've been speaking to banks about blockchain and distributed ledger technologies, and they react exactly the same way as the labels do to Napster. Right, it's exactly the same. Whatever you think of currency and speculation and all this stuff, this is transformational technology, and it would do well to look, focus on it and see where the value opportunity is. Um, and I'm seeing a lot of that same sort of reaction to AI, generative AI, adaptive AI tools, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The other thing, it just saying, look, I just hope it goes away. Hiding is not a strategy. With regard to the music industry, we're moving to a world where I mentioned it was $24 when we entered into the um, start of the, uh, uh, well, start of my career to a world where in America it's about $150 is the average spend. And there's lots of conversations about how to slice up that pie, which again, we can talk about a little later. But I think the opportunity with regard to music is what if you actually gave people what they wanted? And we're seeing people address and use adaptive AI tools, voice AI tools, and jumping on these things in the millions. Here is the inflection point for the music industry. Do you follow that behavior and give people what they want? Or do you try the control paradigm? Spoiler alert, you know what happened last time. And then secondly, I do think as well that there is still a zero-sum game approach with regard to that $150 and how that's sliced up. Sometimes I have to sort of gently explain to the music industry that the opportunity, they think that that's all that people have got and long conversations about pricey elasticity, about $9.99 versus 1199 and various tedious conversations. So what I do is then look at something like coffee. For the National Coffee Association of the US, the average spend is $1,050 in the US. For females aged 18 to 34, it's $2,200. The entire music industry, depending on what you talk about, its overall valuation, some people say 46 million, some people say 60 billion, sorry, billion, I'm just, uh, million, sorry. You know, and there's the wonderful FT, music in the airport, et cetera, et cetera. Starbucks, market capitalization, is about 120 billion. That's one company in one commodity. So I was a little bit triggered by the word commodities. See, the thing about commodities is the way to make money is don't commoditize it. Turn it into experiences. Give people what they want. Give them every flavour, every size, every, you know, how many pumps of sugar you're going to put into it. There's a lot of money to be made. And that's, for me, what I find much more interesting about music.
1: And Cliff, um, I guess let's go to that. Who do you think are going to lay down the tracks, to use a lovely music analogy? Is it going to be uh, a Mr. Google And we saw last week the announcement of Deep Mind's, and you know that, as you say, opening up to the world. Actually, Uh, you can create your own dream tracks. Is it is it going to be Universal Warner, or is it going to be a Google that really does, as you say, break through and lead the way here?
3: No, I've been really cheered by the response from the music industry more of late to AI. Um, When I was working with Duke Deck and other companies like AI Music. You know, the, 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 the response went from sceptical all the way to dubious, you know, and no interest whatsoever. And then, you know, it was only when, you know, Duke Deck was acquired by a plucky startup called Byte Dance that people started to think, oh maybe maybe this is a thing. Um and various other exits as well, which were, you know, I brought to the industry before. To the industry's credit, they are looking at this. Why are they looking at it? Number one, it's what fans want. Number two, they're all listed or partially listed. So what they need to do is be able to show to their shareholders now it's much more about returns rather than necessarily purely about control. And three, the music industry has learned if you establish a licensing model, you can build value. If you wait for one to be litigated or imposed upon you, you could end up like how you've ended up in certain other social platforms. So you're seeing Universal work with Endel in relation to functional music. You're seeing Universal partner with... Um, uh, uh, YouTube and DeepMind's Lyria, in order to be able to do licensed models, give me a song by T-Pain, which is a sunny, breezy California day, and create 30-second tracks. So we're seeing experimentation. There are businesses out there that are going through the licensing process. So I think it's going well, but to answer your very specific question, who's going to lay down the tracks? It's going to be what the fans want. Because what we're seeing with the fans and music fans Price elasticity for tickets seems to be near infinite, and experiences. So as we move into that world of giving people what they want, I confidently predict this industry will make more money.
1: And and, and from a, and putting your legal hat on, um, I guess you know everyone talks about copyright, but copyright is different in the music industry versus say other you know broadcast, film, um, books. Can you can you help us get our heads around what legal precedents or what the legal industry is going to how they're going to approach this idea of uh, protection or or IP or copyright? Um, and of course, you know we know that Getty Images uh, uh, lawsuit is is what is what the content creation side is 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 looking at to get guidance. What is the music industry looking to? in terms of uh either regulation or protection
3: yeah um it's an excellent question it's one i get um you said and i don't mean to be pedantic that there's something special about the music industry um it's not really i mean you know if you ever try clearing mu- uh, 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 all the rights for a documentary you've got music film artist performance you know all of these elements as well copyright is a layered concept one of the things that tends to bamboozle people with regard to music is the fact that you've got two rights existing in a quantum state. You've got the underlying composition, which can have several owners, and then the owner of the sound recording, which may be split on territory basis, etc., etc. So those two issues. And the thing is, is that even though you would think those businesses are aligned, they're not always. So it's a bit of a pain in the backside sometimes in relation to that. But my view with regard to copyright as a lawyer, how I've been taught is, I don't see, I don't have a kind of a black letter reading of the law says this. Copyright is a highly, highly flexible, pragmatic tool, not only for control, but actually for monetization. And what you realise is that actually the bad actors will use perfection to be the enemy of the good. Public performance of music in public spaces, so music being played in a coffee shop or a hairdresser, etc, etc. There's a right, there's a body that collects it, Is it perfect? No. Does it recognise the right and bring in millions and millions of pounds? Yes, it does. Same is in relation to music, in relation to social media, messaging platforms, short-form video platforms. The labels and the publishers have licences in place that recognise the rights, get themselves paid and put themselves in a good position for when these business models grow in order to be able to extract more value, which is exactly what happened with the likes of Spotify and Deezer and Apple Music in the day. So I don't think that. And when you're coming to that, which which I think is something that people find a little bit confusing, is piracy is piracy. And copyright infringement is really quite clear in relation to um, these issues. So you mentioned Getty, uh, the Getty Images cases where they're saying that businesses have trained on their works. And they've got a fairly compelling face-to-face in their lawsuit, as it were. Um, And what is happening is that some of these large language models are trying to say, actually, you know what, it's like reading a book, you know, just because a computer reads a book and gets an inspiration. I don't want to put my head in advice because I've got too many horses in the race. He says mixing lots and lots of messagings, as it were. I'm not sure that's right. And they're trying to create a kind of a fair use. And there is a difference between training, learning and models that are taught. On the flip side, Getty Images, and again, um, uh, they've invested and uh, licensed all of their content to a wonderful platform called Bria, B-R-I-A A-I. And that is one where they have, uh, that's a business where you can type in blue banana with a monkey, and it will generate a brand new photorealistic image of that. And then what it does is that it has a diffusion model, which pays the rights holders, depending on all of the works that they've done, in order to credit them and give them the you know their fair share of the stuff back. That I think leads to the kind of models, technology and licensing, which is essentially the expression of copyright, where we can really look to see, oh, okay, this is how it's going to work.
1: That's that's helpful to unpack that. Can I just have like Mm -hmm. one one last question from me? You're you're easing into my my time, Maureen, you're like just Okay, I'm getting told off, but just just so that I understand, is it a red herring? Is it a red herring that we have Drake's and the Weekend issues that has been talked about uh, ad Adfeniton versus Grimes,
3: who says,
1: hey, this is another way of selling me, my voice, and who I am. Is it a red herring?
3: It, it's not a red herring, but actually they show the same thing. So the issue with the Drake and Weekend one was that it was done without permission, and it got shut down very, very quickly because it's very clear that it's infringing copyright. However, Grimes showed the way, saying, come on, everyone, you can license my voice with permission. I want to get paid. And that is the live conversation that's happening right now. There are entities out there that are getting these licenses in order to be able to scale, because that's what people want to do. So it's not a red herring at all. But Drake and The weekend got shut down. Grimes is making lots and lots of money and pointing the way to a new future role of value. If this had been happened five years ago ten years ago I mean you know there was even that parody video New York state of mind the Jay-Z thing etc cetera, etc cetera, where that got pulled and actually ended up with the UK finally establishing a right of parody under the law pretty much because of that things have changed in quite a short order now so I think Grimes shows the way to where future value can come these things should be done with permission these things should be done with rights clearances and they should be done with payment. If you can put those things together, like the guys at Brea have done and other models that I'm working on out there, everyone can make more money.
2: I think that's interesting because that's exactly what ended up happening with YouTube, didn't it? Where they went from the piracy model to, okay, let's let's find deals and music labels, amongst others, have made. A lot of money out of YouTube. Yeah, I,
3: I mean, well, I mean, you know, they may hesitate the word piracy. They would say that it was DMCA fair use, but, you know, potato, potato. <laughs> um, but, you know, but not irrelevant in all of this, the new yeah. C- global CEO of Warner Music come from YouTube.
2: Kinsel. It's Robert yeah.
3: Kinsel. And Robert Kinsel, before that, was at Netflix and tells a very compelling model that actually, that when you pay creators and influencers, everyone wins. And, you know, with the likes of Kinsel, sat up Warner Music, I think that's, again, is to be somewhat of a catalyst with regard to people realizing actually you've got a major player with rights in publishing and global distribution with some of the biggest um, recorded artists in the world i think things are going to get very interesting
2: i want to bring us back to i mean we could talk about this for many more hours uh, uh, but i also want to touch on some non-technology well you know probably slightly technology t- tangentially technology related issues but that are very live in the music industry right now, and I want to start with the biggest of them all, Taylor Swift, and her in you know her current uh, actions of re-recording all of her old records because she was unable to get the rights back. And you've said music rights are actually very simple. I think anybody who hasn't worked in the music industry for the last 10 years might disagree, but you know, we've got to move on from there. What what do you think, what are the labels saying about this? What's the, what's your position as a lawyer? Is there a danger here? What's what's going on?
3: Well, Taylor has a very, very specific set of circumstances. So Mm -hmm. Taylor was signed through what we call a production deal. So she didn't, wasn't signed directly to a label. She originally signed to a production deal, happens more in the US than it does in the UK. And then that production deal, Owned all of her rights, and then those rights were licensed on to the major label. In that deal, and those deals tend not to be too sophisticated, they didn't have a re recording restrictions. And essentially, what happened was Taylor's version of the story was she was never offered the rights to be able to buy back her catalogue before they sold that company, Big Machine, sold those rights, I think, to a private equity company or, or some sort of investor. And she was so annoyed and peeved, she decided to re record her own version. I have to say, every major recording uh, agreement that I've ever touched since 1996 has had a re recording restriction from five years to sometimes 20 years, as it were. And it was a bad contract that has allowed Taylor to be able to see this perfect loophole. And of course, you know, for those people who bought the rights, and whilst I said um, music rights, I didn't say they were simple, I was saying they're. People make them a lot more complicated, particularly lawyers with their inverted whistle. It's very complicated. I prefer to say (laughs) sophisticated. Um, But we have a world where um, essentially, you know, they bought these rights. She owns and controls the music publishing rights. So if anyone wants to use that in an ad, she'll say no, unless you use my version. So she has brand new master recordings, she'll get royalty under the old deal, she owns those new master recordings and can control it because of the underlying rights that she has in the publishing rights. So the people who bought those sound recordings, they're not going to make no money, but they're not going to make quite as much money as they would have hoped and I'm sure modelled in their acquisition strategy.
2: That sounds very good for Taylor, but unlikely to be something that starts going through the music industry. Like I think
3: some independent labels, some country labels, some country production companies are probably in the midst of tuning up their contracts, but this is something you do that. And it's something that happens as well. I mean, um, the band, the wonderful band squeeze um, uh, what they did is uh, they, they made an album called spot the difference where at the end of their 25 year recording restriction, decided to do note for note perfect re-records that they would own so it did mean that if call for cats was used in a cat advert they would say you've got to use our version so this isn't a particularly new phenomenon but artists normally have to wait for that re-recording restriction to expire taylor was lucky stroke unlucky um in order to not had had that that in her contract so you know it, it was a cunning move from uh, from the swifty there
2: Excellent. And moving on to a related topic, which is what we've seen over the last few years, is this flurry of large, you know, big stars selling their catalogues for sometimes a lot of money. And the question was whether they are worth that much money, they're worth much more money. It's a good move. You know, what do you think? Why do you think this is happening right now?
3: Um, yeah, I mean, when I arrived at um, the Sorkin, there was a retiring partner who told me the story of selling the Beatles Publishing catalog, the the songwriting catalog, and explained that how you know the last two that were, that
2: was sold to Michael Jackson originally. Yeah, and
3: the last two bidders were Paul McCartney and Michael Jackson, and Michael Jackson paid forty seven and <laughs> a half million dollars, and everyone thought he was nuts. I mean, beyond that, they thought he was j- he finally lost it. How could buying a catalog of songs be worth forty seven million? Surely the master recording, surely, 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 surely. It's difficult to recompile what that deal's worth, but it's probably in the billions because he parlayed that into an overall joint venture with Sony Music Publishing, sharing in absolutely everything. And then again, the vestiges of those rights are sold. And of course, the clock doesn't start ticking on those rights you know, uh, until 70 years after Paul McCartney's death. And I hope that's not for a very, very long time. So you've got a misunderstanding of the asset. I think from a financial perspective, people have seen it as high volatility, high risk. That they've mixed up ANR, which is what labels are really, really good at, with the ideas of song catalogs, and also the pivot, which again has very much been from the likes of Spotify of onwards, of music moving to and and you know sort of monthly recurring revenue business rather than being a high volatility business means it's something you can actually model. Um, I still speak to a number of people that don't understand the difference between the recording rights and the underlining compositions don't understand all these various other related rights hashtag hire the right lawyer um you know and and you know to understand what you're investing in but you know again people are saying oh is it 15 times is it 20 times earnings some of these rights have got a hundred years to go you know i was speaking to a very big artist lawyer in an industry event he said "Look, i have to tell these people they're offering you 20 times for the next hundred years what what, is that right?" Now, some of the mega deals that have happened with regard to things like Sting and Dylan and um, the likes as well, um, I think a lot of that's been about estate planning. Sorry, I don't want to pre-bury anyone. Some people were concerned about Biden hiding hiking taxes. I think a lot of people wanted to look at all of these issues as well. So for the mega, mega deals, which, to be honest, really have been the purview of the major labels, because they are the ones who can really soak the assets in that sort of long, coordinated way. but I think like any, any investment, people need to understand what they're buying, what they're investing and what they're doing. But the idea of music rights just being one bucket of asset class would be like, say, hmm, what's the best coffee company to invest in? You would say, what? Well, what are they? Where are they doing? What's the yield? What's the background? Where does it come from? I'm not seeing sometimes a lot of that critical thinking when it comes to investing in music. Spoiler alert, it's exactly the same
2: coffee music this is what we're going to love this is it uh, a, a final question before we, we move on to our final part which is um, Spotify payouts are they paying enough are they paying too little how much money should be going to the artist I mean yeah. well what's your, yeah what's
3: this, your this, is, this is this I know it's ganar i for a very long time I've had very big artists saying oh Spotify doesn't pay me enough I said please show me your royalty statement from Spotify And then they show me their royalty statement from their label or their aggregator. No, I asked you to show me your your royalty statement from Spotify. Spotify pay a lot of money. Mm. Spotify pay out a lot of money, more money than in many ways the industry has ever seen. So the question about um, does Spotify pay enough? Just look at the books. It pays plenty. The question that people don't understand is, how does the artist deal with the labels and or aggregators match to how that income comes in? How are the sums allocated, etc. Cetera, et cetera, That is the question to ask. You know, asking if Spotify pays enough is like asking, do, do banks pay enough? You know, it's a silly question. I'm not saying this of you, Claire. Everyone says it. The real question (laughs) is, are they paying me the right amount for the right account for the way I put in, et cetera, et cetera. And there are various conversations going on about the allocation of revenue. There's been um, parliamentary inquiries in the UK with regard to whether or not artists are seeing a fair share in relation to their label deals, et cetera, et cetera. So all of those are, as we say, hot topics at the moment.
2: Very good. So when Robert Kinsel goes out and says Spotify doesn't pay enough,
3: Well, I mean, Spotify, no, no, no. Kinsel. and again, I know you're being provocative, as it were. I am. Kinsel was saying, look, do I think that they could pay more? As in, do I think they could charge more, I think is what he was saying. And then number two, he came into one of the live conversations, which is what we call, we've got user-centric, artist-centric, fan-centric, different roles, et cetera, et cetera, where he was of the view that right now the way the payouts work is that um, you know, there's music out there, functional music, background music, music that sounds like rain. What Kinsel was saying was, you know, drops of rain should not be equivalent to Ed Sheeran. And he's after a certain thing about the allocation model with regard to what's on Spotify versus, you know, what we would say is frontline music artists. In the music industry, there's just been this view of the song, that every song should be treated the same. But I think that that market is up for dynamism. So how the allocation works how the payout works how they're going to happen going forward are you going to incentivize people to listen longer more upsell etc cetera, etc cetera? those are the conversations that are going on right now
2: really great great uh, very interesting and, and interesting because obviously at youtube there was a whole there was a lot of discussions around premium content versus uh the, the best example is fireplace or aqu- aquarium videos right. as well which were also watch watched for hours and hours, but yeah. perhaps not, not the same level of uh, attraction for viewers. I think we're ready to move into our last section, which is we wanted to ask you to give a, you know, we're getting to the end of this year. Uh, we, what do you think 2024 is going to look like for, for the media industry in general and for the music industry in particular?
3: Yeah, I mean, look, you know, the, the, the AI conversation is going nowhere you know, what were the biggest issues behind the Screen Actors Guild and Writers Guild of America points it was in relation to AI. Not stopping it, by the way, I one or two people like Justine Bateman and all were saying it's a, but it really was about the compensation, permission, authority. I think that in the past, you know, the sort of the 10-year window to the five-year window to actually becoming a sort of a one-year window. Now, I think that we are going to see models and clarity with regard to training, learnt, you know, for remuneration models to come there, et cetera, et cetera. There's a real push behind ethical AI in relation to companies that people are investing in. And essentially, I was having conversations before our podcast where I was saying, look, I have a feeling that, you know, for some of these things, it'll be like, well, was it a good I invest? Should I have invested in LimeWire or Napster or should I have invested in Apple iTunes? You know, I I think that there's going to be a regularization of the market that's going to help with regard to media entertainment and content going forward the issue, I think, is the music industry is becoming a lot more nimble with regard to models, focusing on fans, focusing on usages, which is great. But I'm seeing a lot of disturbingly familiar responses from movie studios, from platforms, from sites with regard to audiovisual content. And, you know, guys, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Doesn't matter what you think, doesn't matter what you want, it is going to happen. And new business models have to emerge. And you know, the conversations about the size of windows, like why does there need to be a window? And I'm not saying in relation there should be no windows, I'm saying look, you've got to look at these things on a multilateral way.
1: I'm picking up on picking up on predictions for 2024, uh, Cliff. So we've seen a lot of really fascinating uh, startups that have uh, that have uh, embraced AI and come to the market. Um, you know, you mentioned Universal and Endel. I've seen a number of fantastic businesses um, only this week. Uh, I think a couple you're investing in as well. Um, do you think though that open source will drive innovation versus say? Uh, the larger tech players like Google, Meta, that could possibly start to play with that open source, closed source, and maybe destroy some of these startups. What do you see? How do you see uh, the, the the market of 2024 with respect to these really interesting innovations that are part of the gener- generative AI uh, landscape?
3: Um by way of analogy, so I'd say that we're, you know, in the sort of GPT prompt world, this is like the Google box. Oh, my God, there's a simple box where I can tap something in and get the answer. It's how we felt when we first used Google. And that's how we feel with regard to ChatGPT. I think the next issue that's going to get wild is when we get to the App Store element of that. When these chatbot API agents start, connecting and interconnecting, when you can have them embedded in your, you know, Arthur D. Little website, or you can have it embedded in the Lewis Sorkin website, you can have it embedded in whatever, and then they'd be able to sort of have, carry on sophisticated conversations with each other, not chatting away, learning, building, etc, etc. We're going to, do, you know, it would have been impossible to explain Uber to someone in 2001, but yet 10 years on, 11 years on, etc, etc, beyond normal, completely natural, you know, and, 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 and again, a wild discontinuous thing, which was jailbreak, you know, which basically opened, created to then led to the open of the app store. We've got Napster and LimeWire leading to the birth of digital music. If we've got open AI as this sort of inciting incident, as it were. Of course, in parallel with DeepMind and Llama and Anthropic and, you know, the various other things out there, those chatbot agents talking to each other, I think is, you know, again, it'll be stuff that we just couldn't even begin to anticipate.
1: Wonderful. Well, thank you, Cliff. This has been marvellous. We could speak all day with you. We really could. Uh, And
3: hopefully you've
1: enjoyed it and hopefully you'll come back. I'll be uh, delighted to
3: improve just how wrong I was about all my predictions. (laughs)
2: oh that's fine we're wrong all the time we're actually we're making a specific point to be wrong as many as many times as we can we, if, if it's we if do, it's
3: all gone yeah. wrong you can join me at my new coffee shop that will open at the end yeah, of next week well, exactly.
2: that's Very the best coffee. statistic
1: i've heard 2000 is it really 2200 yeah depending <laughs> on
3: the age
0: demographic for wow. women
3: wow. in in major conurbations etc cetera, etc cetera, it's yeah.
0: uh... and more but than again, women the average that's incredible
3: yeah, yeah, Buy a but, but split it up somewhere. on a daily. Uh, split it up on a daily basis, yeah. and that's not just at shops. That's Nespresso an and instant and blah blah blah, etc cetera, etc. Cetera. But you break it down to the number of days. And, well, yeah, about
0: right. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's how I justified yeah. a coffee machine with a with a with a proper. Um, a uh, proper grinder. That was fantastic. So I always um, gauge how successful a guest has been by the number of post-it notes uh, that I create uh, as I'm listening. Um, my desk now looks like a, a Greek lady's wedding dress. It's just like got stickers all over it. Uh, so I'm going to actually write that up. That's absolutely brilliant. And kudos for mentioning one of the best bands of the 1980 squeeze from someone who's actually played music Uh, live with chris Difford. um he was slightly better on guitar than i was uh but that was uh, amazing thank you um Thank you so much but by the way a uh, uh, little plug for uh, adl we actually do use chat bt uh, uh, in in our everyday work we have something called smart search which uses a large language model that uh, looks at all the data that we have internally to ask questions i'm sorry Cliff, no, it it's like you were about to add something
3: oh no no just two things i mean just a tiny plug i'm i'm vice chair of the musicians benevolent fund also known as chris uh, as, as uh, help musicians and uh, Christopher is our leading ambassador and is one of the nicest people on the absolute planet. He's an absolute so hero awesome. and so awesome um, does and a, a wonderful, wonderful podcast called I Never Thought It Would Happen, um, where he interviews the world's greatest artists about what, the pain of being an artist. So he
0: starts strong with Sting and Robbie Williams, and I can strongly recommend it. So, well, he's and, got a great uh, story about meeting Prince, hasn't he? Which I won't, uh, but I'm going to definitely listen to that. And it was just like this sort of nothing story, and he like came out and went, Oh, right, okay, that was Prince. <laughs> uh, yeah, he was absolutely awesome to come to our blues camp and play with some of the worst musicians in South England. Uh, that shows the measure of the man. <laughs> um, thanks ever so much, Cliff. That was so, uh, so brilliant, you won't believe. And during that, uh, my daughter texted me to say, Can we go and see Lana Del Rey in Leeds next uh, year? a nice uh, musical um musical treat so it um, won't be cheap I'll, well no it, uh, to your absolute point i will probably pay almost anything to see the smile on my little girl's face as lana comes on stage which is exactly what you were saying earlier thank you so much that was uh, a brilliant i'll just quickly um uh, claire great questioning uh, I'll, I'll see you soon bye for now
2: Bye-bye.
0: Uh, and more, and you're being provocative as well, which was good. And Maureen, brilliant stuff as ever. Thanks, Maureen. See you in the office soon.
2: Thank
1: you, Oliver. I'll see you soon.
0: And of course, got to leave the last thanks to Cliff. Cliff, so enlightening. Thank you so much. I do hope you come on again and uh, we see you soon. Have a wonderful rest of the day, everybody, uh, including, of course, our listeners. Uh, comment on uh, anything that you'd like us to talk about on one of our famous deep dives on LinkedIn. Uh, And we will see you next time. Until then, thanks for listening and goodbye.